For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lindy Peterson, and I've been going to this congregation, to this church, for about a decade now, although I only formally became a member about two years ago. Um, I've always been intrigued by summer services because they give us the opportunity to hear from lay voices in the congregation, uh, and I was pleased to be able to present today. Although, honestly, I'm kind of glad we can do it in the more laid-back setting of a recorded message instead of me having to present live. Um, it may be a small, bright spot for those of us who have public speaking anxiety uh, inside of all the unsettling things that are going on right now, but I'll take it. So, speaking of all of the unsettling things that are going right on right now, uh, I find myself thinking about the future a lot. And, oddly, when I do, I tend to find myself thinking about the past. Uh, not just the history that I learned in school or read in books, but my family history. And looking to those stories to find what insight I can. So I thought I'd share with you today a little bit about my paternal grandfather and my mom's maternal grandfather, so my great-grandpa, and what I've taken from their stories when I'm thinking about current events. So if you'll indulge me, um, I'm going to start chronologically, and I'll start with my great-grandpa. Now, my great-grandfather, Taru Arakaki, was born in Okinawa in, I think, 1888. Um, and Okinawa had only been annexed by Japan in about 1870. So at that time, it was a poor island territory with a subtropical climate. And when plantation sugarcane plantations in Hawaii were looking to recruit labor, uh, Okinawans were a pretty popular workforce. Taru came to Hawaii in 1906. And he went to work on a sugarcane plantation on the Big Island there. Um, he only went back to Okinawa once in 1916 to get married, uh, before coming back to Hawaii to keep working. And as far as I've been able to tell from the stories in my family, um, their marriage was arranged between his family and hers, and I'm not sure whether or not they had met before they got married. But nevertheless, uh, he married Kamado, and she followed him to Hawaii in 1917, where they raised a family of 11 children together. They made uh, extra money by leasing some land off of the plantation and working it on the evenings and the weekends with their older kids. And Taro was able to sell the sugarcane that they sold there, uh, that they grew there, um, to get a little extra money. Now that money he sent back to Okinawa so that his family could buy land with the intention that eventually they would move back and resettle there. Um, you know, there's so much about their lives that I wish I knew more about. Um, because there were actually some really interesting developments in, in the labor movement in Hawaii at that time. Um, now, plantation owners had recruited workers from a bunch of different places, uh, with the thinking that the Japanese workers, the Chinese workers, the Filipino workers, the Koreans, the Portuguese, would be separated by different languages and different cultures, and that they wouldn't be able to, to organize, basically. Um, ultimately, that effort failed, and there was the first general strike of plantation workers in Hawaii in 1924. And it's generally thought that the collaboration between the plantation workers directly led to the unique racial um, and social order that exists in Hawaii today. It's really different from just about everywhere else. And I wonder, you know, did Taru, was he, did he participate in the labor movement? Um, I know that he lived off the plantation. He had a little bit of extra time. He was able to work his own land. So does that mean that maybe he was more of a manager in an overseer kind of position? Uh, was he against the labor movement? Um, I don't know. You know, unfortunately, my grandma wasn't born until 1931. So her memories that she's told me about living on the Big Island are pretty incomplete. Um, and she hasn't been able to give me a lot of insight 
into what her parents, who she calls Oka-san and Oto-san, uh, what, what kind of decisions they were making back then. So what I do know is that sometime in the late 1930s or possibly early 1940, um, when it became more and more likely that we were going to go to war with Japan, uh, Taru moved his family from the Big Island to Oahu uh, in preparation to go back to Okinawa. That was where all the ships left from, was Honolulu. So, you know, I kind of presume that he felt pressure to return home before war started, because once war started, it would be impossible. Um, and the reason I think he felt quite a bit of pressure is that when he moved his family to Honolulu, he didn't actually have enough money to buy 13 tickets back to Okinawa. Um, all the money he'd saved up to that point, he had sent back to Okinawa. The family there had it. So he took work in Honolulu to try and save enough. Um, he was still working in December of 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed and uh, all travel to Japan was closed. You know, even though Taro never made it back home to Okinawa, he died in 1949, his children, who'd been born in Hawaii and were American citizens, actually had quite a bit more opportunity living in Honolulu than they would have if they'd been in the rural sugarcane plantations. So that's my great-grandpa's story. I'm going to leave that for now, and I'm going to switch to the other side of my family. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my paternal grandfather. So my grandpa was born Everett Hawkins in Puyallup, Washington in 1919. Um, he was born in 1919, so he just missed the pandemic of the last century, but he did unfortunately contract tuberculosis when he was a small child. Now TB at that time had no cure and not really any effective treatment. So he was separated from his family. He was placed in a sanitarium where uh, six sick individuals could be isolated from the healthy population. Uh, apparently, my grandpa was pretty sick, and he wasn't expected to survive. So instead of being put in the children's ward uh, with all the other children, he was put in the women's ward. Now, I'm not sure what the reasoning was, whether it was it would be cruel to the other children to uh, make them live with someone who was going to die, or whether it was a kindness to my grandpa to put him in a ward where the, uh, the other patients there would be more likely to care for him. But whatever the reason, um, he did actually get better. Uh, and unfortunately, by the time he was released from the sanitarium, he either went directly into the foster system or he went into the foster system very shortly thereafter. I don't know the whole story of that, um, but the, his adoption papers do say that uh, his father had been uh, unconditionally deprived of custody and his mother had been found insane. So when he was 12, he was, he was adopted by John Victor and Marie Peterson. Um, now, JV was an immigrant from Sweden. Uh, he'd come to the U.S., he'd made his way to Washington State, and founded the Washington Chicken Farmers Co-op. So my grandpa's name was uh, changed to Everett Peterson, and he moved to Whidbey Island, which is up in Puget Sound, uh, where he spent the rest of his childhood. Now, after graduating from high school, uh, he took a job as a logger. Um, there was a pretty big business back then, and in that place. And they were making um, mine support tinner, timbers for the silver mines down in Mexico. Uh, my grandpa, he only did that for about a year or two, though, because in uh, 1938, he decided to join the United States Army. He later told my dad that it had become obvious to him that we were going to go to war pretty soon, and he figured it was better for him to enlist before that happened so that he could uh, have the training already, um, have a little bit of seniority. Now, he joined in 1938, so 
His term of enlistment ended with no war being declared, and he mustered out in October of 1941. Now, in December, uh, December 8th of 1941, he made his way back to the recruiting office to re-enlist. Uh, he found that there was, as in many places in the country, a long line of young men waiting to sign up. And according to the stories that I've heard, when he got there, the recruiters saw my grandpa and they said, Everett, thank God you're here. Sit down and help us get all these men enlisted. So my grandpa, he'd been a yeoman uh, in his previous enlistments. He knew how to use a typewriter. He could fill out a form. He knew the procedures. And he worked for three days enlisting all the other men who were there before they got his papers pushed through and he joined the army again. Um, he was able to re-enter the army as a corporal instead of a private. Um, and instead of basic training, he went to work in the recruiting office before training as an artilleryman in the 104th Infantry Division. Now, it was after he re-enlisted um, and before he deployed that he married my grandma, Rachel. And I'm just going to take a little aside here and share with you that towards the end of her life, my grandma told me about um, that time. And she said that when my grandpa deployed, he put their joint bank account into her name which apparently really ticked off my great-grandpa, J.V. Peterson, who, uh, who my grandma at that point still called Mr. Peterson, um, because J.V. thought that it was very inappropriate for a woman to be in charge of any kind of financial responsibilities. And, you know, I never really thought of my grandma as any kind of bastion of liberal feminism, but I gained a lot of respect for her when I found out that she spent the war years living with and defying her father-in-law. But anyway, as for my grandpa, uh, he deployed to Europe. He fought in the Netherlands and in Germany. Uh, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. He uh, participated in the liberation of the Nordhausen concentration camp. Now he came home in September of 1945. He mustered out a month later. Um, you know, and I wonder if his decision to join the army before the war started had put him in a better position than the others who didn't sign up until after Pearl Harbor. You know, I don't know for sure. A lot of the stories that I've heard from them uh, from that time uh, are about times when if he'd been a little less lucky, he would have died. Uh, I know he got a bronze star for when he was uh, in combat. You know, on the other hand, he did survive and plenty of folks his age didn't. So. You know, after mustering out, he came He came home to Whidbey Island. He inherited the family farm, worked for Boeing for a while, was on the local school board, um, and was still living on the family farm when he died in 1994, working on the roof with my uncle. Now, it strikes me over and over when I think about my grandpa and my great-grandpa that they both lived in tumultuous times, kind of the same time, really. Uh, and they made significant decisions in their lives based on what they perceived to be happening in the world. And they made those decisions before circumstances had really forced them to. You know, my great-grandpa Taru decided he needed to move his entire family. And he decided it was so important that he started doing it before he had the money to follow all the way through. Uh, my grandpa Everett decided that all of the folks back then saying, oh, there's not going to be another war, things are going to get worked out, and even if there is a war, America's not going to be involved. He decided that uh, it wasn't worth putting his faith in those voices, and he prepared himself. 
you know, neither, neither my grandpa or my great grandpa had things work out exactly the way they expected, but I do respect and I admire the way they decided to be proactive in their own lives. It's something I think about a lot and I try to follow that example when I can. You know, a lot of the history, the world history that I've learned talks about how, you know, big events affected everyday people. You know, it can be very moving to hear about how people tried to ride out the uncertainty and the chaos when it hit them. The most memorable accounts are often of people who talk about how they willfully ignored the signs around them, how they wish that they could have acted sooner, um, they regret the decisions they made. And it can be easy to hear these accounts and think about world history as a kind of tsunami that comes in with little or no warning and it just swipes everything in its path. I also think, you know, that in today's world, where we see so much of our news happening on screens, um, we even interact with friends and coworkers on screens almost exclusively right now, um, that it can encourage us to think of ourselves as passive witnesses to history, you know, as consumers of the television show that is reality. And I think that way of viewing the world is particularly dangerous um, because when events finally affect us personally, we feel blindsided. You know, like all of a sudden our predictable, orderly, normal lives uh, have been hit by just this random scary tornado. And all we can do is hunker down, you know, wait for it to pass and sort of hope we can go back to normal soon. And, you know, we in Peoria live in tornado country, so I understand the temptation to think of it that way. But I think the moment that we're in right now is more like not a tornado, but a hurricane, which... Um, you know, it's been a long time developing, a long time growing. We know generally where it's going, um, and it's going to take its time hitting us and moving through. In this case, I also think it's more useful to think of our lives, ourselves, not as a house that's built on an unmoving foundation, but more as a boat um, on the water, which can take us in the direction that we find most useful. And if you know any sailors, or if you are a sailor, you'll know that a boat that's in stormy waters that allows itself to be pushed whichever way the wind and the current take it is in danger of being lost, no matter how large or powerful or stable that boat is. The best hope to weather a storm is to keep an eye on the wind, trim your sails accordingly, and turn into each wave and take it head on. There's no guarantee when you do that that you won't be swamped, and when the storm's passed you might not be in the place that you had intended to go but it is your best chance to make it through. My grandpa and my great-grandpa didn't wait for history to happen to them. I'm sure they both saw the news um, and had uncertainty about the future, but even so, they didn't wait to be swept up in the storm. They looked at the world, and they decided to face that storm directly, to take the waves head-on. Uh, those decisions made a difference for themselves and for the people, other people in their lives. And when I think about them, I know we can do the same. This moment in history keeps reminding us and actually makes it impossible to ignore that important things are going on right now. And we can choose how we face it. Um, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you should join the army or that you should gather up your family to repatriate them to your ancestral homelands. Um, I can't see the future any more than you can, but I know what has already happened. There's a health crisis, it's fueling an economic crisis. There's social and racial unrest that I think 
reflect an ongoing political chaos? I don't know what the answer is to all of this, but I think that whatever comes, we're going to be better off together. Uh, as a strong community, we can support those of us who need it, and we can take collective actions that can make a difference. So I've decided to invest in this church. Uh, I was excited and honored to be on the ministerial search committee, and I'm going to continue doing everything that I can to keep this church successful. I hope you think that this community is worth it too, and that we can weather this storm together. So thanks for listening to me talk a while this morning, and I look forward to seeing all of you in the future.